I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 126. Today's thought from above is this. The soul knows best. If you missed the pod episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, from Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above. Setting our minds on good, beautiful, and true thoughts, on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy. And that is why we do this podcast, to provide for you in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell upon so that your heart will be warmed and you will become an epiphany of grace. Well, we have entered into the season of the church year called Advent. Advent means coming or to come. And we celebrate in Advent the coming of the Christ child. So Advent is the season where we prepare for the coming of the Christ, which is the center of what Christmas is about. Now, for me, every single year, I find this dilemma. I call it the Advent dilemma, which is... On one sense, I know spiritually that this season is all about preparing for the coming of the Christ, celebrating the greatest gift the world has ever been given, which is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That changes everything. It's the most important thing that ever happened in the world, and that's the center. And yet also, I recognize that Christmas is a holiday. It's time for us to gather together, to celebrate, to go through our traditions, to give each other gifts. And I also know that Christmas is that season where we buy a lot of stuff and we get a lot of stuff and we hope we get a lot of stuff. And so there is that very commercial side and then there's that spiritual side. That's the dilemma I find about Advent. You remember the old TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I remember when that show first came out, and I would watch that. I'd watch it with my parents, actually. They really loved that show. And we'd watch it because it was built on this premise that, wow, if I just had a million dollars, man, life would be great. Wouldn't it be great? And so we're watching this person. They're answering those easy softball questions early, and then the questions get harder, and we're going, come on, phone a friend. You can get it. Don't miss. All because we have this idea that if you had a million dollars. Oh my goodness, life would be great. But you may remember actually on this podcast, AJ Swoboda was my guest, and he's told a story about one holiday when his grandparents were journeying to be with them. And along the way, they stopped at a gas station and his grandfather bought a lottery ticket. And lo and behold, it won. I think it was two or three million dollars. And AJ told the story about how at first they were very excited, but then over time they realized, oh my goodness, this has actually changed our lives, not for the good. In fact, his grandparents would end up getting divorced. His family would end up being pulled apart because everyone was sort of jockeying for the money. And AJ said very starkly, it was the worst thing that ever happened to our family. Now that's a cautionary tale. And I'm not saying money is a bad thing. Money is a good thing. It's the love of money that causes problems. But I think there is that narrative 
that if I just had a whole bunch of money, my life would be great. And yet, deep down in our souls, we know better. We know that the things that really matter in life are things like love and family and friendship, those deep values. So I like to say it this way. Your soul actually knows best. Now, in the 20th century, we, we developed this understanding of the human person that we are a self, which is an isolated individual, and therefore we are in competition with other people. We're alone, and we're always having to strive for the things that we get. That's a view of the human person. Somewhere throughout the 20th century, the idea that we are embodied souls, sacred beings, went to the wayside. And in its place, we think of ourselves as a self. And the self is easily fooled, easily tricked into thinking, oh, the things that really matter, well, that's things like money and power and fame and those sorts of things, which in the end actually disappoint. One of the reasons I love the Psalms, so many reasons I love the Psalms, but is something that C.S. Lewis said. He said, the Psalms are the sole book of the Bible. The, the Psalms give expression to the deepest yearnings of our soul. Our self feels all of these desires that end up leading us down the wrong paths, but our soul actually longs for the things that really, truly matter. Psalm 25 one of my favorite psalms, begins this way. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Right away, the psalmist begins, To you, O God, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, what's your soul? Your soul is the deepest part of you. It's a spiritual dimension. It animates your life. It's at the core who you are as a person. And one of the things that we all experience is a sense of shame. Now, what is shame? Shame is feeling bad about who we are. That's different than guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about things we've done. And that's actually a good thing. Quite often, guilt is, a, is something that's good for us. We do something wrong, and we should feel badly about it. But shame is feeling bad about who we are. So when the psalmist cries out, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, Oh my God, in you I trust, do not let me be put to shame. The psalmist is crying out to God for affirmation of who they are as persons. We live in a world, as Dallas Willard said, of assault and withdrawal. Assault is what we do to each other when we want to harm someone. So someone says something really terrible to you, something bad, a criticism, an insult, or maybe worse. And that's a form of, of assault. You know that feeling when you've been attacked. But another thing that we humans do to each other is withdrawal. And that's when we don't pay attention to someone, when we act as if they don't even matter. So, for example, someone would say, wow, my, my dad was really mean when I was a kid. He said mean things. That would be assault. But another person may say, you know, my dad was never around. Well, that would be withdrawal. Either way, we end up with this feeling that we don't matter, that we're not enough. That's what shame is. So when the psalmist cries out, do not let me be put to shame, the same psalmist who's lifted up his or her soul to God, what is God's response? God's response is, you are my sacred child. You are my beloved. You are divinely designed 
you are divinely desired. I made you before the foundation of the world. I knew who you were. I brought you into existence, and I long to be in relationship with you. See, the soul knows that shame is not something we were designed for and cries out to God, and God responds with his affirmation of love. It's so beautiful. Another thing that our souls long for is truth. In the very next verse in Psalm 25, the psalmist says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Lead me in your truth. See, your soul actually knows what is true. The self, as I mentioned, can be easily fooled, easily tricked. You remember fool's gold. It kind of looked like gold, but it actually wasn't gold. The self is easily tricked, but the soul knows what truth is. Deep down, that intuitive sense, and the soul longs for truth because truth is what we can count on, what we can rely on, what we can build our life around. In Psalm 19.7, the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, how is the the law perfect, and how does it revive the soul? Because, it, you know, for some of us who've studied Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, the law gets a pretty bad rap. I mean, the law is that which kills us, that which judges us. And I think we have to understand this in the right way. If you, by the law, try to justify your existence before God, you're in trouble because no one can keep the law. That's what Paul's trying to say. No one is righteous. No, not one. We can never justify ourselves before God by keeping the law. But that doesn't mean that the law is bad. In fact, the law is good. The psalmist will say in other psalms, the law is sweeter than honey. It's a beautiful thing. But in what sense is it beautiful? Well, Martin Luther, founder of the Protestant Church, had this practice, a private prayer practice that Luther did regularly. He would meditate on the Ten Commandments. Now, you might be thinking, as I did when I learned that, that seems pretty boring. I mean, let's say, let's meditate on, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, I don't know how you get any really great spiritual wisdom out of that. But here's the thing that Luther knew. Those things are true. We should never have any other God before God. If we do, it goes badly. And I struggle with that. I suspect you do. There are times when I think, wow, I think I... I, I value that more than I do God. And it can be things like fame or success or money or whatever we're chasing. But so when Luther was meditating on, on the Ten Commandments, he was recognizing the truth that you should never have any God before God, that you shouldn't make a graven image. Why not make a graven image? Because that's reducing God into something small, you know, a carved bird or something, a, you can't, you can't take the Almighty God and, and reduce that down to something that humans can make or control. God's too big for that. That's true. You shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. That's the third commandment. Why is that important? Well, it's not about cussing. That's just saying the name of God is sacred, which is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Meaning, may your name be sacred, God. That's what we are saying. That's what that commandment's about, that the name of God is sacred. Same with keeping the Sabbath or honoring your father and mother and all the knots in the second tablet, which is, you know, we shouldn't kill or 
Jesus would say, be angry. Those are truth. You can build your life on them, and your soul knows that. Another thing that our souls long for is to be loved. Now, as I said earlier, your soul's the deepest part of you. And one of the ways that God restores or revives or strengthens our soul is by caring for us, by loving us. And to love is not merely a good feeling. It is to will the good of another. That was the great definition Dallas Willard gave of love. Love is to will and to act for the good of another. And that's what God does for us. Which is why the 23rd Psalm is the most beloved of all the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now what's that meaning? What's going on there? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want means God has provided everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures, so when I'm tired, he gives me rest. He leads me beside still waters, he refreshes me. And then what's the next clause? He restores my soul. And that's what God does. God loves us by caring for us, by providing for us, by forgiving us. In verse 7 of Psalm 25, the psalmist writes, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake. Don't remember my transgressions, the psalmist cries out. Why? Because the, the weight of our sins is actually heavy on our souls. Our souls don't run on a clock, on a calendar. So if we commit a sin, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, that can still weigh on us because that's the nature of it. It's an infraction. We know it was wrong. Now, I'm not talking here about a sin against another person. If I sin against my brother or sister, uh, I need to confess that, and I ask that them for forgiveness. But the psalmist here is crying out to God, and we often say this sometimes in our liturgy, in the confession, we'll say, I've sinned against you, O God, in thought, word, and deed. Those sins that we've committed against God, we turn to God, our souls say, I can't bear the weight of this. O Lord, please forgive me. And what's God's response? Forgiveness. I love Hebrews 10, 17, where the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah, who says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Wow. Think about that. We turn to God and ask for forgiveness, and God is saying, I have provided for you a new covenant. And in that new covenant, my son died for your sins, all your sins, past, present, and future. You are justified justified in your confidence in Jesus, your trust. Justification is kind of corny, but justification means just as if I had never sinned. That's the beauty of the new covenant. And when a soul encounters that truth, oh, it changes everything. We write some beautiful hymns for when that, when that word, that truth becomes a reality. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Or Horatio Spafford in his great hymn, It is well with my soul, the second verse. My sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. He's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. When we encounter 
the forgiveness of God in Christ, our soul finds wellness. John Wesley, I've talked a lot about Wesley on this podcast, founder of the Methodist Church. May 24, 1738, John went to a meeting at Aldersgate Street where the Moravians were holding a a prayer and study, teaching. Peter Bowler was reading about uh, Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. And as he was reading that, Wesley said, the Spirit came upon him. And he said, I knew that my sins, even mine, had been forgiven, and my heart was strangely warmed. And that would transform John's life, which would transform the Methodist movement, which would transform thousands of lives, millions of lives. It's a powerful truth. Your soul longs for that. But I love how the psalm ends in Psalm, psalm 25, 9. The psalmist says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Now, why would this psalmist who's cried out for these needs of the soul to be loved, to be forgiven, to be cared for, to not be put to shame, why would, why would this word about humility come in? Well, I think it's this. Your soul knows how to walk the way of humility. Yourself, when you think of yourself as a self, you will always follow the path of pride. The self follows the path of pride, and that's why when someone says something to us that's hurtful and we get offended, that's the self, that self that thinks I'm isolated, I'm alone, I'm in competition. But your soul knows better. Your soul knows that I am not God. God is God, and I want it that way. That's why he leads the humble in what is right, because we were designed for that. Yourself has a whole bunch of wants. It wants recognition. It wants to impress other people. It wants to have a lot of things. It wants to be better than someone else, not content to just being who we are. But your soul, see, your soul has these needs, the deep needs for the true things. Jesus understood this. He told this parable about a man who was so wealthy that he had to build more and more barns to take care of all of his stuff. And then Jesus drops the punchline, and then he died. Meaning what? Meaning everything that he thought his life was about was nothing. Because you never see a hearse followed by a U-Haul, right? You can't take it with you. So he drops that line, and then he died. And then Jesus ends that parable. This is Mark eight thirty six. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? See, your soul knows, your soul knows what is best, what is true. During the Christmas season, every year I try to watch It's a Wonderful Life because it's my favorite Christmas movie. And it's this incredible film about a man, George Bailey, who wants to have this life and travel the world and do all these things, but he ends up being stuck in his hometown but he does incredible good for so many people. Then he encounters this financial mistake that was made that may actually put him in jail, and he thinks he's at the end of his rope, and he thinks of actually ending his own life. And he jumps off a bridge, but he doesn't jump off a bridge to end his life. He jumps off a bridge because somebody else jumped in the water, and he jumps in to save them, and turns out that was an angel named Clarence. And then Clarence, when they come out of the water, shows George what his life would have been like if he had never been born. And in that process, George would see the deep needs of our soul, that life is about family, it's about friendship, it's about love, it's about faith, 
commitment to each other. George got it right with a little help from an angel. So we think of that TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? That, that pulls us in, doesn't it? The self goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what the soul responds to is this question. Who wants to live in the kingdom? Who wants to live in an interactive relationship with God in everything that we do, in the dark valleys, in the highs, in the successes? God is with me. You have a soul. It has many needs. And it leads us into the things that really, really matter. I pray that during this season of Advent, you would experience soul wellness, that you would lean into the things that really give life to your soul. I would encourage you over this very busy season that we're moving into to spend some time alone in solitude with God. Let God restore your soul in solitude and silence. I would encourage you, like Martin Luther, maybe to meditate on the Ten Commandments, to practice that. It's a beautiful thing. I would also encourage you to use the Jesus Prayer, which is a great practice of humility. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or you can shorten it just to Lord Jesus, have mercy. Or even Jesus, because you're crying out that he is your king. I pray that during this season you would experience soul wellness. I hope you do get the good gifts that you want under that tree. But more importantly, I hope that you get the things that your soul really longs for. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Well, as we have done in the past few seasons, we'll be taking a break during this season of Advent and through the holidays. We'll be back first of next year. We have some incredible guests lined up. I'm very excited for what we're going to be doing in 2023. I hope you join me next time, which will be January 6th. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things About Podcast, you can. You can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind, your answer will be, things above.